Well, good morning. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here. I want to welcome you to Ridgetop Church. And hopefully you kept your finger there in page 775 or uh, kept your phone open um, to Matthew 20, end of Matthew 20 and into the beginning of Matthew 21. Um, each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all make a big deal out of this final week leading up to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Um, you could describe, and it has been described by different biblical scholars as each gospel being a long prologue of Jesus' teaching and healing, uh, all leading up to Holy Week. And the narrative just like slows down, and we get to see lots of details about this final week of, of Jesus' teaching and uh, death, burial, resurrection. Um, we are going to be looking at the gospel <clears throat> of Matthew um, mostly because we, we have been preaching through part of the Gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. And so I'll be talking about Gospel of Matthew stuff uh, t- today and then on Good Friday. We'll have some folks reading and, and commenting on that and then Easter Sunday as well. So you kind of get a, at least a, <clears throat> a, a, a thorough going through of the part of Holy Week that is the gospel, in the Gospel of, of Matthew. <clears throat> Sorry. And we, <clears throat> we went through on Wednesday night the chapters 21 through 25 and just read them all and and prayed and so if you didn't get to experience that you may want to do that this week like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday leading up to Good Friday okay and go back read Matthew 21 through 25 uh, and just just kind of get an experience of this week and the teachings and the things that Jesus was saying um, and and doing in this week leading up to Good Friday so what happens on Palm Sunday, and what does it reveal about Jesus? Right? This is the, the, the gist of the sermon this morning. Pretty simple. What, what is Palm Sunday? What, why does it even matter? Right? So what happened on Palm Sunday? Well, one of the ways that we, we're going to sort of decode this triumphal entry, this Palm Sunday experience, is we're going to go a little bit before Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and then we're going to go a little bit after he's already in Jerusalem. And this is a little Bible interpretation hack for you, right? You're trying to ex- understand a particular passage of Scripture. Well, read what's before it and read what's after it and think about, okay, how does that inform this passage that I'm trying to understand? Um, the story before Jesus goes into uh, Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is this story about these two blind men. And we see in, in Matthew twenty twenty nine it says, And uh, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. So Jericho is about 30 miles outside of Jerusalem. Um, they're going to make an ascent to uh, Jerusalem. And it's going to take about a day and a half. And so they've evidently been in Jericho. They've been doing some ministry, doing some teaching. And there's a great crowd. And this is one of the things that's pretty prominent at this time in Jesus's uh, ministry, and he's been at it for like three years. Uh, he has got a lot of popularity, and part of that is his authoritative teaching, and very meaningful teaching. But also, he's doing healings. I mean, he's raised people from the dead, and so you do that, you, you're going to get some followers. And so he's got this great crowd that is interested in in who he is, what he's doing, um, and this is what happens on the way out of Jericho. So. Matthew 20, verse 30 says, Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. 
Now, these two blind men are wanting to be healed. That's not surprising since Jesus has the ability to heal, and they've heard about healings, I'm sure. And so these blind men are addressing him in a very special way. And they're using this term, quote, son of David. And that's significant. It's significant for uh, the Gospel of Matthew, it's this, this, this phrase is used 10 times in the Gospel of Matthew, um, which is a lot in comparison to other Gospels. So Mark uses it like three times, Luke four times, but Matthew 10 times, and Matthew's very first verse has the son of David in it. So Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, uh, very opening chapter, says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. So Matthew definitely wants this son of David um, name for Jesus to be prominent in his gospel. It's going to show up a lot in this little section that uh, we just heard Alberto read. So what's the significance of this title? Well, uh, this is a messianic title, right? The son of David, the Jewish Messiah that the Jewish people are waiting for. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's one of the titles that points to that reality. And even like a chapter or two later when uh, Jesus and the Pharisees are having a conversation, Matthew twenty-two forty-one says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, Who do you think about, uh, the, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. It's one of those ten times it shows up in Matthew. So this is, a, this is an important uh, designator for who Jesus is, the Jewish Messiah. And Matthew's taking great pains to show us this about his identity. Um, now, the crowd's not pleased with these blind men. Um, and so they rebuke them, verse 31, and telling them to be silent. Um, these, folk, these guys definitely not seen as being very worthy, having, having any kind of power, having any kind of worthiness of respect. And they're just like, shut up, right? Stop this. Stop bothering. You see this pattern a lot. Uh, with, with children and different kinds of groups that are trying to get to Jesus and the rest of the crowd are like, you don't matter, get out of here. And instead of saying, oh, okay, so sorry, they just cry out again. And this time it's louder. Son of David! <laughs> and Jesus hears it. And, 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 and so not only are they saying son of David, but they're saying Lord. Lord. Using a divine title and a messianic title kind of sandwiched in to one. And um, this is interesting, right? These, these blind guys are the announcers of the identity of who Jesus really is. And they think he's the right person to heal them of their disease because not only is he this messianic king, but he is divine, right? He is spiritual and material in their eyes, like, he has value on both sides of the coin. And their understanding even of their disease is that it's linked to spirituality. It's, it's, it's woven together. Uh, there, there was no secular worldview in the first century. Everyone is thinking about the material and the immaterial world being linked together. Some authors have said that the, the, the ancient world was enchanted, right? It's, it's a spiritual place, not just a material place. And so if something's going on in the material world, they're thinking spiritually about that problem. Um, now, this can be taken too far to, to the degree of sort of superstition, but they're not wrong. 
the material world and the problems in the material world are connected to spiritual problems. Sickness and disease at their core are actually from the problem of sin, not in a one-to-one kind of correlation way where these blind guys did something wrong and now they're blind, but in an indirect way in terms of human sin being at the core of all human suffering. And so they're looking to Jesus, not just in a physical way, which is kind of our tendency to, to read this story, but they're also looking to him in a spiritual way as well when they say, have mercy on us, Lord, the Son of David. Now, Jesus hears them the second time, and he stops for a chat. Verse 32, stopping, Jesus called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> This is a great window into Jesus, his personality, the way that he interacted with people. It seems obvious what they want, but he wants to have a conversation. And so he asks a provocative question to have both the crowd see this, but also to have an interaction with these two men. And it's more about who he is, right? Um, it feels a little bit like, you know, the genie in the bottle saying, you got three wishes, and the first two don't count. You just got one. One shot. What do you want? That's something to meditate on. Go home meditate on that. What if Jesus said, what do you want? <laughs> what would you say? What would you say? Uh, maybe you've been around some people who have lots of resources. And you sit down with them. This has happened to me. And they're like, what can I do for you? How can I help you? And you're like, gulp. What do I say? Do I ask them for something? Do I not ask them for something? Do we just have a coffee? Like, I don't know. And these two blind men hear that question. And um, this is what happens. Verse 33, they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. I think that's significant. They don't just say, heal me. They say, I want my eyes to be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So Jesus has compassion on them, touches them literally on the point, at the point of their need, their eyes that they are wanting to be healed, and he immediately and completely heals them. And they follow him. They follow him. This is also a pattern in the Gospel of Matthew following Jesus. It's, it's very prominent in his gospel, and it's even more prominent than other gospels. So, you know, Matthew 4, when Jesus is calling the disciples, he says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then another place, and th this actually shows up m many more times than I'm actually sharing with you, but here's some of the big ones. Matthew 8, Jesus says to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. It's important in Matthew's story uh, Matthew 9, when uh, he's talking to Matthew, and he says, he passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. There's no way Matthew ever forgot that moment. And then just another one, verse, uh, Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This theme is throughout 
the Gospel of Matthew. And so there's something to the story of the blind being given sight by a compassionate, divine, messianic Jesus and them responding by following him. There's no doubt this is the pattern that Matthew wants to reveal. And this is all happening in preparation for Palm Sunday. So we flash forward 30 miles on foot. I think we've, we miss this, right? Because we just hop in a car and we just go. They didn't have cars to hop in and go. So they, probably a day and a half of walking, talking, reflecting, and then they get to Jerusalem. So this is 21, Matthew 21, 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. All four gospel writers seem to think this is an important story. The donkey story. Jesus seems to have special information about a donkey and its whereabouts and the willingness of the owner of the donkey to let them use the donkey. It's a simple story. But again, we're seeing something miraculous going on in Jesus' understanding of what's going on in just this normal little exchange with a donkey owner. And then Matthew and the other gospel writers give this as an explanation. Verse 4 Matthew 21, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Again, all the gospel writers, they want to make sure that we know that 500 years before Jesus hits the scene, this was prophesied by the prophet Zechariah. And it's describing, again, 500 years before Jesus, the Messiah coming into Zion or Jerusalem. Those are interchangeable. And he's humble and he's on a donkey. Jesus knows this prophecy and so do to the Jews of his day. And so he is signaling to them, hey, I'm that Messiah that you've been waiting for. And he signals that to them by riding in on a donkey. And the, the, the disciples um, do, what he, do what he says, verse 6. They went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees. That's where we get Palm Sunday. Branches from the trees. And spread them on the road, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the, oh, there it is again, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now it's not just a bunch of, a couple of blind men saying, hey, son of David. Now it's a crowd, and, and, and they're in Jerusalem, <laughs> And so here they are in the heart of governmental power for Israel. It's like the Washington, D.C. of Israel. This is where the, the king would reside. Um, you know, we, 
uh, do a lot to, to, to try to sort of glorify our government in Washington, D.C. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C., it's, it's very impressive. There's lots of monuments and big buildings, and it's, it's just glory all around. And the day of inauguration is probably the highest and the sort of holiest day in Washington, D.C. And there's literally hundreds of thousands of people that are behind this in those malls, and then all these people around the, the, the president like, taking the oath of office. And so in a, in a sense, Jesus is sort of taking the oath of office. He's saying, I'm the king. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one the prophets spoke of. I'm that guy. And he's not just declaring that, you know, off in some small town. He's declaring it in the heart of governmental power. Now, people are into it. And there's reasons, right? Some of it may be legit reasons of uh, seeing Jesus, hearing Jesus teach, seeing, seeing him heal, and they're like, I'm on your team. I don't care what happens next. I'm with you, right? But there's also people that are like, he looks like a winner right now. His poll numbers are way up. Like, if I align myself with him and he takes over, I'm going to get perks. Like, there's a lot of different motivations swirling around in this crowd, and even Matthew points to the mixture of Responses and motives going on, Matthew uh, 21, 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You're like, well, which was it? Was the crowd saying, Hosanna, he's the son of David? Or is it the crowd saying, ah, he's a prophet from Nazareth? Yes. It's a mix. It's a mix of motives, a mix of responses. And this uh, acknowledgement that not everyone is saying he's the Messiah, like it's a shift in the narrative. And if Jesus was a modern-day politician, he would hire a PR firm, he would take some polls, and he would try to figure out who the swing voters are. He would try to bring the swing voters over to his side to get over 50%. It's not exactly what he does. He heads for the temple. Not only is Jerusalem the heart of civil government, it's also the heart of religion. And so he's, 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 he's kind of in Washington, D.C., and kind of like what Rome is for the Catholic Church, all wrapped into one. Right? Rome is a pretty impressive place. I've never been there, but it's, it's a pretty impressive place. There are amazing buildings and cathedrals and uh, people by the hundreds of thousands will go there, right? And again, so we, we don't just have Rome and D.C. We, they're all mushed together in Jerusalem. And it's been this way a thousand year, from a thousand years before Jesus. So a thousand years before Jesus, you've got King David who brings the, 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 the tabernacle and the, the center of worship to Jerusalem, which is already his center for governmental control. And this is pretty standard for the ancient world. You want to make sure your religion and your government are right there next to each other so you can say, our God is on the side of our government, right? Some things never change. And, and so it's wrapped into this place of, of, of Jerusalem, right? And then David's son, Solomon, he cements this by uh, building the temple, 
And once that temple's there, man, that, that center's going nowhere except Jerusalem. So this is a thousand years of history leading up to this moment where Jesus walks in as a messianic king and then walks over to the temple. Now, is he going to have a, like a press release or have a photo op or something like that? No, not exactly. Um, here's what he does at the temple. Matthew 21, 12. Jesus enters the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Not much of a PR strategy here. Can you imagine? Going in, kicking over tables, quoting scripture. He's mad. And he has every right to be mad. Because this place is supposed to be his father's house is being used in a corrupt way to make money. They're literally doing money changing so that you can pay the quote temple tax in the appropriate currency. And they don't take Roman currency because it's dirty. And so you bring your Roman currency in, they're like, we can help you with that right this way. We'll do a little exchange. Oh, there's that fee. Did I tell you that? It's in the small print. They're making money off of God's people as they're coming into the temple to worship the one true God. And he sees that, and he understands, obviously, the importance of this week. And he starts kicking over tables. He starts confronting them with their corruption. Now, not only is there uh, a corruption in just the, the way that they're interacting with the Israelites, but in the way that they're interacting with those who are outside of Israel. Um, this verse that he quotes, interestingly enough, it doesn't just say a house of prayer. It says a house of prayer for the nations. And Mark actually includes that portion in his uh, gospel. Mark eleven seventeen 17 says, he was teaching them and saying to them, it, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. Matthew leaves it out. Mark leaves, leaves it in. And so there's, there's, there's more than just judging the corruption there. It's what it's doing to the witness to the nations. The nations are supposed to be able to come into this place and be able to find the one true God. Now, the temple, the way it's set up, uh, Herod's temple, is, is, it's layers of this as you come in. So when you, you come in the front, and it's the court of Gentiles. And then if you're a Jewish woman, you can go to the next level. If you're a Jewish man, you can go to the next level. If you're a priest, you can go to the next level. If you're a high priest, you can go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. So if you're non-Jewish, this is where you can come and worship the one true God. So what had happened was, they said, well, let's set up our money changing, our, 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 our market here, and then the rest of this can be for actual worship. And Jesus walks in here, and he's like, uh-uh. I'm going to throw it, right? He confronts it. And of course, there's mixed reactions to this, right? Um, he's going to talk more about that through the week. So if you're reading your Matthew 21 through 25, you're going to read Matthew 24, where he's going to say, Jesus left the temple and was going away. 
And when his disciples came to, the, to point out to him the buildings of the temple, he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So this, this is a few chapters later, in the week of Holy Week. This is on his mind. And he's walking with the disciples, and they're like, wow, wow, look at all these buildings. And he's like, they're going to be gone. And they were. Forty years later, 70 AD, Romans come in, they wipe the whole place out. And that temple's gone. And so he, he's confronting the corruption that's in that temple and in the religion of his day. At the moment of Jesus' death, you'll hear some more about the temple. Matthew 27, uh, 50, 51 says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Okay, so this is the exact moment Jesus dies. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. There's obviously a seismic shift happening, literally <laughs> and spiritually. The temple being shaken and a new order being put in place. So again, some, max, some mixed reviews to what Jesus is doing. So Matthew 21, 14 says, The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the, and the, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the, whoop, there it is again, son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you've prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So some people are really excited about it. The blind and the lame, they're all about it. And they hear that Jesus has taken over the temple, that there's a sort of new spiritual sheriff in town. And when they hear that, they run to the temple. And that is very odd because because of their physical defects, remember, spiritual, physical, all kind of one sandwich, because of their physical defects, they were spiritually unclean. They couldn't go into the temple. They'd never been in the temple. And when they heard Jesus was there, they headed to the temple. And Jesus welcomed them. And he made them clean. What? That's not, What? I thought the unclean came in and made the place unclean. No, the unclean come in and then Jesus makes them clean. And so they are all about it. They are all about this new seismic shift that's happening on Holy Week. And they understand uh, what's happening. There's also some children involved. Some other unlikely people who seem to be getting what's happening in this moment. Um, Children of the ancient world did not have the highly prized status that they do here in the modern world. They were property. And in the Roman Empire, you could beat them to death without much of even a consequence. So these are very unlikely representatives for the PR campaign of Jesus. Blind and lame (laughs) and babies and kids going, that's him! It's the son of David. <laughs> and then the chief priests 
not so much. Right? They're saying, how dare you let them say that about you? And he doesn't correct them. He doesn't correct anyone who's saying, son of David, son of David, whether it's the, the, the two blind men in the beginning, the blind and lame that are coming in the temple, the children that are crying out. He never says, no, 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 no. I'm just a teacher. I'm, I'm, I'm just a healer. Like, come on, guys. I'm not that guy. No, he receives that praise. And evidently, he'll receive praise from anyone, and I mean anyone, who's willing to give it. So what does this reveal about Jesus? I, a lot. I mean, I, think, I was thinking, I, got, I think I could come up with 15 points here, but I only have three. And uh, so you continue to meditate on this portion of Scripture because I think there's a lot here that reveals some really important things about Jesus. But here's three things. So one is, Jesus is the promised Messiah, and he's come to save all people. He is the promised Messiah, and he has come to save all people. And that includes Israel, but also the nations. And he's making that very clear in the way that he comes in to Jerusalem and what he does in that temple clearing. Number two, Jesus gives access to God to those who humbly admit their need. Jesus gives access to God to those who humbly admit their need. This opening of the doors to the blind and the lame and the children, it's just a taste, just a taste of the access that Jesus has come to give to a holy God. He's not saying that God's not holy and his stuff doesn't matter. He's letting us know that he's going to take care of this unholiness, this uncleanness when he gets to the cross so that there's access to God through faith. Um, We, who may, may or may not be physically blind, are spiritually blind. If, if we are a Christian, at some point in our journey, we realized that. And we cried out in desperation, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. That's the gateway in to the Christian faith. It's not, oh, I agree, that, I, I agree with that, I agree with that, I agree with that, check, check, check. Although beliefs are important, doctrines are important, don't get me wrong. But there has to be some core cry to God for mercy. And then in response to that, you follow him. This, this is what it means to become a Christian. And maybe some of you have not yet done that. I, I encourage you, cry out to him in faith this morning. Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And he is at the ready to, to give forgiveness and spiritual healing, physical healing if needed to draw you to himself, to draw you to him, the the new temple, (laughs) in relationship with a holy God. But that crying out doesn't stop when you become a Christian. I think it actually increases because you become more and more aware of your neediness. Uh, There's an ancient prayer uh, that has been in the church for 2,000 years, and it's especially important for Eastern Orthodox Christians, called the Jesus Prayer. 
And the, the prayer is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. There's some theology right there to meditate on. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And this is this was the doorway in, and this is a constant reminder that he's giving, transforming grace, assisting us in our neediness, in our, in our humble need. And this is how we follow him. We follow him, not, not by saying, okay, this week I'm just going to try harder. It's uh, an act of faith, an act of reliance on the mercy of God, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out. And then thirdly, Jesus entrusts the job of revealing himself to the world to some very unlikely people. His PR campaign is run by some very unlikely people, which speaks well of all of you. Here we are. We're going to plant a church in Austin, Texas. Woohoo! I mean, do we know what we're doing? Not really. But uh, hey, he's willing to work through anyone crying out, hey, have mercy on our little startup band here of Ridgetop Church. And to, and to respond to that with his mercy, with his grace, to, to empower us, to enable us to plant a church in this neighborhood, on these campuses, and to do it again through unlikely people. So if, if you've been thinking, yeah, I'm just not up to the job, you're right. You're not. But by God's grace, you are. And that's part of the beauty of it. And this is his mode. I'm telling you, this, this is his way. This is what he does. He, he doesn't go up the chain to the most powerful and say, if I could just get the most powerful, if I could just get some big entertainer to become a Christian, then it would be amazing. And, you know, that would be awesome. If Taylor Swift became a Christian, that would be awesome. And she could stand in front of her millions and she could say, follow Jesus. And he might do that. But I'm telling you, kind of his mode is to go the other way, to go down to the least likely and give them mercy, give them grace, and give them this testimony of what he's done in their lives to reveal it. I remember when we were uh, attempting to plant a church in Massachusetts and trying to figure out how to do it, and hearing a lot of horror stories about churches that tried and failed, tried and failed. You know, that's always an encouragement to a church planter. You know, like, hey, there's just 15 churches that already tried this over the last 20 years, and uh, good luck, and I got that. <laughs> but I also was, like, kind of looking around at the few churches, and I mean, it's very few, that had been planted and were growing, were reaching some people, in the valley where we were. And what I found out is that each of them had been started by college students. Is that really what you would start with? Like if you were coming up with a grand plan for how to plant a church, let's get a bunch of college students that have no money and are, are, are pretty young and they don't really know anything about church planting and then let's plant a church in one of the hard, hardest regions of the United States of America. Yes, that's a great plan. But that was God's plan. I'm telling you, this this is his way, right? And it's not just about college students, but it's about the least likely. Joining together around the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and following him 
right? I mean, can you imagine those two blind guys? They, they couldn't see before. And they're, he, they're like, we're following you. Like, where are we going? I don't know. I don't, I've never seen anything before. I'm just going to look at the back of your head, and I'm just going to follow you. I mean, it's, a, it's that kind of, like, willingness to follow Jesus. And again, it's those that they, 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 they've sensed that at the core is crying out to the son of David for mercy. We, we remember this every time we come to this table. A few days after Palm Sunday, Jesus is going to be with his disciples. And he'll be sharing a Passover. And, and, the, and the disciples are going to think, this is Passover. Like, I, they're, they're good Jewish boys. Like, they know Passover. They know the narrative. They know, they know the prayers by heart. They know everything about it. And it feels so much like home. And, and they're, they're, they're seeing Jesus, their leader, taking him through this thing. And we're going to do this on Thursday. So, on Wednesday, sorry, on Wednesday night. And so, if you haven't signed up, you should, because it's going to be awesome. Um, and so, he's cruising through it, and he takes the matzah, and he breaks it, and blesses it, and they're like, okay, okay, that, that's good. That's, that seems like on, on point here. And he goes, this is my body given for you. This is how desperate we as sinners are. Jesus has to give his own self to save us. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. He's come to make us clean. To make us clean. He's, he's welcoming us into the temple. Every, t- every time we're coming up here, we're getting the bread, and we're getting the cup. It's like we're reenacting that. Blind, lame, heading for the temple. <laughs> heading toward the holy God. And we get there, and there's Jesus. And Jesus is like, the only way you're going to get this holy God is you're going to come through me. You've got to come through me. And you're going to have to put your faith, not just in my healing and teaching, but in what he's going to do at the cross a few days later when he dies in our place for sin. And when we receive that by faith, we get access to God. And so we're reenacting that every time we do this. And you come up, blind, lame, children, you take the bread, you take the cup, and you're reminded of access to God and, and your relationship with him. And if you're a Christ follower, we welcome you to the table. If you're not yet a Christ follower, I'm encouraging you this morning to receive what Christ has done for you by faith. And then come up to the table. But if you're not there yet, if you're exploring the Christian faith, if you have no idea what I just said, it's okay. We're glad you're here. But I'm going to encourage you during this time just to remain in your seat, to pray, think about what you're hearing, and then have a conversation about it. Come talk to me or talk to one, others, one of the others in the room here uh, that would be willing to, to have that conversation, to explore more what it means to be a Christ follower. So I'm going to pray, and then uh, when you're ready, you can come up and take the bread and cup. Lord, we, we come to you Blind, lame, children. We're crying out to you, Lord, have mercy on us. We did that when we came to faith in you and became one of your own. But we, we're crying it out again, afresh. Not, not to save us, but to continue transforming us and encouraging us and strengthening us by the gospel.
Because we can't do this. We can't follow you without it, God. It's too much. And so, God, would you work in this time to encourage us, to sustain us, or to, to help us repent from sin, to, to be washed clean, to be in a, in, a, in, a, in a new way, just refreshed and brought into the presence of the holy God. And we pray your blessing on this bread and on this cup and our time in worship with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.